Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Steve Wershing, and on this week's show, I have the opportunity to interview my co-host, Julie Littlechild. Known as the creator of the Client Audit and for her research on client engagement, Julie has a new book out, Absolute Engagement. It turns out that to get clients better engaged, you need to be engaged yourself. And in Absolute Engagement, she discusses how to be happier, more satisfied, and by doing that, be in the top 15% of financial advisors. We'll talk about the power of big goals. We'll talk about the importance of audacity in helping you think differently and creatively. And we'll learn the difference between satisfaction and loyalty and what that means in terms of referrals. We'll talk about the power of having the right clients, doing the right work, and having the right role. It's a great conversation with some fundamental understandings about how to be in the top 15% of advisors. I hope you'll enjoy it. And now, on with the show. Well, Julie, it's a special treat to talk with you, my co-host, on the show today. And I'm especially excited uh, about talking with you because you have a new book out, The Pursuit of Absolute Engagement, Intentionally Design a Business that Supports the Life You Really Want to Live. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I mean, honestly, since I was a kid, I've wanted to do this. So I am just a little sort of kid at Christmas excited. So as a kid, you said you wanted to come out with a book about intentionally designing a business that supports the life you really want to live. That's your, that you were precocious. I was just slightly ahead of my time. I suppose so. <laughs> I mean, I, I, st- I, I'm, I'm, I was like that, that kid on the commercial. I, I forget who it was for, but you know, I want to claw my way up to middle management. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a monster. That was, that, was <laughs> that was that was me as the kid. Um, yeah, well, that, that's and and so welcome welcome now to the to the to the ranks of of published authors. How how was the experience for you? Well, you know, it's it was there was a lot of learning. I tell you that I I always think that writing's sort of my home, my place that I can. Um, it's it's not easy for me, but it's I get into a bit of a flow. So I loved the fact that I could go a little broader with the messages that I was trying to send out. And I really enjoyed the writing process. And then, of course, I started to learn about all the details of actually getting published and printed and and all of that, which, and there's a lot to learn, but I feel so much smarter now. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those where it's it's uh, it sounds really appealing and it sounds like uh, and it sounds like a fun project and then just like anything else you get involved in it. Oh, there's these seven hundred thousand details that I didn't know about. Yeah. So let's get into uh, the the content of the book now. Um, I know that some people could be a little bit confused um, about what the book is about because you're known for writing about client engagement and this is actually something beyond that, isn't it? It is. And it's, it's, I would say it's built off the foundation of client engagement. It's not a complete change, but really, uh, you know, for so many years, just as you say, I spent all of my time researching and talking about client engagement. And I would have probably told you uh, that if anybody asked me, what's the secret to success, I would have focused on client engagement. And I still think as, as important as it is, really what happened in my own journey and the research I was doing and the people that I was speaking with in the industry 
is that I, I kind of pulled the camera back, if you will, and, and looked at a broader perspective on success. And I began to realize that it wasn't just client engagement, but it was client engagement in the context of deeper personal engagement. And of course, it related to team engagement. So the most successful people that I saw, and I I mean, I define success in a certain way, but the, the the successful people that I saw really had this alignment between personal client and team engagement. They were all connected. And so those things together, to me, that's absolute engagement. And so tell me a little bit about the experience of discovering that. So you were interviewing advisors as a follow-up to some of the research you had done about client engagement. And what kinds of things did you start hearing in those interviews that sort of gave you the idea that there was something more going on? It was what I heard and what I observed in a way, and, and sometimes it's the things that weren't stated. I, I kept looking at people that I just considered incredibly successful, and I saw that it wasn't just that the business was growing. It wasn't just that they were doing well financially, but there seemed to be almost a a lightness or a joy in in the way that they were going about their business they almost made it look easy you know they so the business itself was going from success to success but there was just something very different in the way they talked about it in the way they'd built the business in the way they were living their lives they when they were doing some extraordinary things outside of business and i and then, you know, at the same time, I was going through my own sort of personal journey where I began to think about what kind of business I wanted. And, and all of these things just seemed to come together to say, there's something there's something more here. There's something more about success than just saying, here's the three tactics you can apply in your business and and what people are really experiencing. And, and being a researcher, I wanted to understand it. So I went out and did the, the quantitative research afterward. Interesting. So can can you tell us a little bit more about that journey that you were going through? I mean, I know most of most of our listeners are entrepreneurs as well. And so I, I suspect that, that your your journey would be relevant to them. What was going on with you when, when you were going through these uh, interviews and, and that, that sort of clued you in that there may be something more for you and for everybody in this? Well, I think I got old. I think that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to say that because you're Somewhere still way younger than me. That's right. No, I um. Well, I had built a, a business like a lot of folks. I had sold the business and I had sold it for um, quite personal reasons. I, I had my son was born and I decided I wanted a different sort of of, of lifestyle. Um, at, at any rate, I I went through that process. I. Uh, went out on my own again after that was all uh, finished, and I just got right to work. You know, what's what's what kind of products can I get out there? Uh, and I I found myself going through almost the same process in a different way. And there was a there's 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 concept in the book that I talk about called the crystallization of discontent, and it's a it's a concept that I really love. Um, a guy named uh, Baumeister sort of coined this term. But I got to this point where I realized that I was on a path that was okay and it might lead to some decent financial success, but that there was something missing. And it was a moment, and I do remember a moment, where I really asked myself what it is that I wanted to do. And it sounds almost trite to say that, but I did. And I sat back 
and I looked forward and I had, you know, and I mean, I joke about age, but there's an element of that. And I began to say, what is, what do I want to do with this next phase? If I could create it instead of just reacting all the time, if I could get that whiteboard and really map out what I want it to look like, and if I had the courage to make those changes, what would I do? And over time, I wouldn't say it was immediate, but it became very clear for me that it was about speaking and training and writing. I mean, those were the components of the business that I loved. And so I made a decision to change my business at that point. Interesting. And so do you, do you think that, I mean, if, if, a, if a typical, and we'll get to what absolute engagement is in just a minute, but do, but do you think that um, if, if an advisor were to, to pursue this and, and, and do this, process of discovery you know how how big a change do you think would be involved in the business i think there's such business, a range their individual in there and yeah and and i think it depends on where they're at of course so i have talked to advisors who made a complete change so i um i mentioned a guy named jason butler in in the book who it had a it was a partner in a successful firm in the uk he went through his own journey of self-discovery and he sold his share in the business and decided he didn't leave the industry he just wanted to do slightly different things within the industry and so that was a huge change that was a complete change I talk about Rita Robbins, who's um, an advisor and, and, and good friend, and, and she didn't change her business. She's running a very successful business, but she invested in a lavender farm and, and started to, to look at some outside interests that she could really be more creative in. Um, and then I talk to most advisors who just need to tweak things, and that might be working with a different target audience. It might be taking on a different role on the team. I mean, there are so many things that could contribute to that, but I, I see this more likely as a tweak to an existing business model rather than a wholesale change in your life. And unless, unless you actually have always dreamt of becoming a yoga instructor and this is the opportunity, there's pretty good chance you're just going to tweak what you're doing. Okay. <clears throat> and so define for us what absolute engagement is. So there's a couple of ways to look at it. And, and so I call the book The Pursuit of Absolute Engagement because I do see it as something that is ongoing. Um, the book, however, is centered around a group of advisors we call the absolutely engaged. And this really emerged from uh, the research and the definition of th this, the, the thing that these advisors were doing differently, uh, was really around building a business around what they were personally passionate about. So they said they worked with exactly the right clients and they'd built a business around that. They did exactly the work they wanted to be doing and they'd built a business around that. And they played the role that they, they wanted and should play on the team. And And what we found is that this group of just 15% of advisors who were doing those three things differently, there was incredible impact. So from a data perspective, we isolated the people who said they were living their ideal in those three areas, client, work, and role. And then we began to look at the impact. And what we saw was, in, in some ways, 
I expected in some way still really surprised me. So they were generating more revenue. They were more focused on the right activities. They uh, they worked fewer hours. They took more time off. But the thing that really struck me is they also reported better health. They reported higher energy, lower stress. And the only thing that was different about them was the way that they structured their business around the right clients, the right work, the right role. And I thought that was pretty amazing that those three things could create such significant impact in our lives, not just our, our businesses. So, you know, these are the absolutely engaged. That is, you know, the definition is that they're doing those three things. Um, however, what we then began to look at is some, uh, the way in which they approach their businesses more broadly, and we could identify some additional trends there. So for those of us who who look at, at CEOs and, and look at leaders, you know, it, it's it's interesting but not terribly surprising that when you when you find the right work and you get you know and you find it more rewarding personally that, that you do make more money, have more success, have less stress. I mean we don't, I I don't personally find that terribly shocking, but you know, a lot of people who are down in it might feel that way, right? Well, I think you're exactly right. I don't think that viscerally, if we said that, anybody would find it that surprising. And the difference is how do you do it? <laughs> you know what? Right, right. So once you figured out what that passion is, the big difference with these people is that they actually took action, and that there, you know, I think that's the fundamental difference. Right. And now, I, when you're talking about the right clients, you know, I, I, I think everybody would understand that. Um, you know that that's going to be unique to each firm. But when you we, when you talk about doing the right work and the right role and the right team, you know th- those are those are not necessarily the same from firm to firm, right? Absolutely, and I, and I don't I don't think the right clients are. So this is about you know the kind of work or the kind of clients you're passionate about that you care about that inspire you that are also financially rewarding. Um, so it's really about getting very specific on what those things are. So so let's let's break it down. I know that um you know you have three principles to move mm-hmm. toward absolute engagement and five steps. Um do you want to tell us briefly what the three principles are and let's start taking a look at what the individual steps are? Yeah, sure. So the three principles are these. The first is that personal vision drives business vision. So rather than the other way around, we begin with a a personal vision for your future and then translate that into a business vision. That's the first principle. The second is that the client and team experience are then tailored to support that. So again, rather than looking at those things in isolation, they're influenced by that personal and business vision in a very meaningful way. And then the third principle really acknowledges that you're human, which might be a shock, I realize, but it really just says... <laughs> it may not be universally uh, true. <laughs> you know, I don't want to say. Um, but it really just says, look, if if you're going to build a business around this personal vision, if you're going to have the courage to to take action on this... You've also got to give yourself space to breathe. You've got to give yourself room to be creative. You've got to, um, you've just got to acknowledge that side of, of your life and how connected that is with your ability to succeed. So those are the three principles. And, and so let's talk about the personal vision for a minute. I, you know, this is, I think, where, um, where it starts getting challenging. It's, it's, 
uh, it's conceptually easy, but uh, when when you talk with advisors who have de developed uh, a personal vision or as you've developed your own, um, can you give us some ideas about what go what they sound like or what they what they look like or what what goes into a personal vision? I I can't you know. The reality is that could be a much bigger definition than I include in the book as well. So personal vision, uh, if we really looked at it in its entirety, would involve what you're trying to accomplish in the world, you know, a lot of different sorts of things. What I tried to do is drive it down to the components of personal vision that are directly related to how you structure the business. And so that's, that is where clients work and rule come in. So the personal vision is, is about a deep understanding of the clients that energize and inspire you, a deep understanding of the kind of work that, that you love to do and a deep understanding of the role that you really should be playing on the team. And that, that becomes the personal vision and awareness of those three things. Okay. Now, once once you've uh, with those three principles in mind, what what are the five steps that you need to go through to work toward absolute engagement? So yeah, what we so what we did is is break this down into into the the five steps, and um, it just it just struck me. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but one of the things. Um, sorry to digress for a moment, but that hmm. I mentioned in the book and discovered in writing the book is this concept of ikigai. Uh, and it's a Japanese term. It, and so I, I read this research um, and it was based around uh, Okinawa and this, you know, it's one of those communities where they have a, the highest percentage of um, 100-year-old plus, a blue zone. And um, they don't have a word for, the, for retirement. And okay. ikigai is that which you wake up for. And so this notion of life and work integration, this notion of getting a handle on what you love to do, um, that for me was just an interesting way of thinking about personal vision because it's all it's all about what you get up to do in the morning, what gets you bouncing out of bed. <clears throat> but again, I digress. Um, <laughs> so, but that is the first step, which is awareness. So the, the five steps are really these. It's awareness, audacity, action, accountability, and renewal. And we wanted to find a way to dig in and say, all right, this, this concept of absolute engagement sounds good. The research suggests there's all sorts of positive outcomes if I can do it. So how do I actually go about it? And awareness is the first step. And that's really about that personal vision piece. Um, it also struck me as, as the more I talk to people about these steps and the more I listen really carefully to what they're telling me is that we all fall down at different stages. You know, some things are just harder. You know, some people grapple with the very first step. With some, it's the last step. We all have different barriers that get in the way at different times. And that's why I think it's so important to break it down into these five steps so that we can be aware of what our challenges are. So early in the process, you talk about having, having goals and, and how, to, how that can lead to change. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, how to put those goals together or what kinds of goals you're talking about? What I've suggested is that that really starts with the first step, which is awareness. And I almost try to separate the specific goals from the first step because so often what we do, I think, is we we go right from 
here's what I'd like to do. Therefore, I'm going to build a business around this. And, and we can actually talk ourselves out of things before we even get a chance to bring it to life. And so awareness as the first step for me is just without editing yourself, without questioning yourself, and without trying to say, this is what it means for the business, just get real on the clients that you'd love to work with and the work that you'd love to do and the role that you should just be playing. Talk yourself through that process. Uh, I've got some exercises in, in, in the book. And and just just allow yourself to think. Uh, you know, I say in the book that this is where possibility lives because it's really about understanding um, what kind of insight, insights you can learn about yourself that will inform that business vision. So it's a bit of navel gazing in a way, but that's I think the first step. But and and <clears throat> and, and let let's talk about the power of having having something big because I've I've met this with advisors before. I've actually had, I've been in um, client advisory boards where the advisory board sort of evaluated the, the advisor's plan. And the plan was, well, we want to, you know, we want to increase our business by 15% next year. And, and yep. now this, this particular board was, was populated by a whole bunch of corporate executives. And so, you know, at least one of them looked at it and said, well, if I look at the trend, 15% is the trend line. And so it sounds like, you know, you're, it's not much of a goal because if you did nothing, you'd continue on that thing. And right. can, can you talk to us a little bit about the power of having, of having a big goal and, and yeah. what that can do for you? Absolutely. And, and in terms of the, the, the five steps, first of all, that to me is sort of the step two. That is saying, now that I have a sense of what I'm passionate about, how do I translate that into a goal? And that's where I think that concept, so the, the research that really underlies a lot of this is from Edwin Locke and Gary Latham. And they wrote one piece called New Directions in Goal Setting that was sort of the, the fundamental piece there. But what they found is that essentially this, if as long as you're committed to a goal, as long as you have the ability to attain it, there's no substantial barriers in your way, that there's a, a, a positive relationship between the difficulty of a goal and your ability to succeed. So essentially, the bigger the goal, the more likely you are to succeed than setting small goals. So that's part one, I think, of what we saw. The other thing is this. If if your goal is to grow by 10 or 15%, the things that you have to do are different than if you set a goal to grow by 500% over a period of time or to work with a different client base or have a different business. And so quite literally, if you don't set that goal up, because it will influence how you act, you're never going to get there. You just won't do the right things because the requirements of getting to 10 to 15% are different. So I talked to, um, there's an advisor in, in Australia, Jonathan Hoyle, and I talk about him in the book. And he was, uh, he, to me, he was a great example because what he said is they got together as a group and they set these massive audacious goals for their future. And what that meant is they had to hire different people. They had to look at different office space. They had to, um, they had to think very differently about the business. And that never would have happened with a small goal or an incremental goal. Yeah. Yeah. They were, and I, I, um, I may get this wrong, but I think it's Peter Diamandis who is in Silicon Valley, a, a, a 
uh, an entrepreneur and, and, and venture capitalist. And when he talks to people who are coming to him for venture funding, <clears throat> you know, he's known for asking questions like, you know, well, here, here are our 10-year goals. And he would ask something like, okay, great. How would you accomplish them in the next six months? Right. Um, because, and, and I think this is what you're getting at is that if an incremental change just means little tweaks to the system, you, Mm -hmm. you, you, you are not going to start creatively thinking unless you start thinking massive, unless you start thinking, well, the way we do it can't work. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, so, so now I have to think of something new and without that, you're not thinking of something new. It's, it's a little like, like Larry Page from Google, I think says, if you set a ridiculously high goal and pursue it, it's almost impossible to fail because even if you miss the goal by 50% or 70%, you've still achieved something big. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's the kinds of goals that we're setting about, you know, talking about here, which is really, they're quite fundamental if you think about it. And there's there's no way you're going to stumble across a change in target market or a change in the work you do or your offer or your role. It, you won't drift toward that. You've got right. to make <clears throat> some substantive change. Right. Or or think about doing having so many clients that you can't possibly do it yourself anymore or having so much work that, you know, you can't possibly just have a couple of generalists on your staff or that you can do with the same technology or that, you know, whatever it is, you know, unless you really think dramatically different, you, 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 you cannot have any kind of a breakthrough there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, it's a wonderful freeing visioning exercise to just think about what that might be. And, and talking about visioning, you know, you, you mentioned in the book, Simon Sinek, who I love and uh, who wrote the book, Start With Why and has that probably the second or third most viewed TED talk of all time. Um, and he talks about uh, about getting to that vision and getting to what's behind the vision. Can you talk a little bit about about that aspect of it? Yeah, I, I believe that a lot of us set goals that just sound right and that we're supposed to set. You know, I want, so especially when you've been in the business a long time. And that's where goals like I want to grow by 10% come. It, you know, it's just, it just sounds logical. But if you really dig in, and, and understand what it is that you're, that truly inspires you, it will often set you in a different direction. And so again, if we think about in the context of what we talk in the book, about which clients truly inspire you, um, there's a reason for that. There's a reason and a why behind why someone wants to work with business owners or why someone wants to do it certain type of work and doesn't really care who the target market is. If you really peel back the onion, there there's an important why there. There's something that is inspiring. And if we can figure that out and then build the business around that, you can just imagine how much it takes off, the kind of momentum that you create. Right. And <clears throat> and, and I think that, that Cynic's... Um... Cynic's message is so applicable in our space, you know, that, that, you know, what he says is people don't do business because of what you do. They do business with you because of why you do it. And, and, and that I, you know, I think that's such an important part of your book is because a hundred years ago when I started in this business, you know, one of the things I learned in sales class was that sales is really nothing more than a transfer of enthusiasm. (laughs) And, um, Sorry for all of you, you know, NAPFA members who just recoiled when I said the word sales. But if you want, but if you want to attract, if you seriously attract clients and referrals, 
then you really have to have that passion for what you do. And, you know, helping people quantify their goals and getting on a systematic path to achieve them so you can achieve peace of mind does not convey any passion at all. Mm-hmm. That you it, really it, have yeah. to get down underneath that and, and into something deeper, right? Yeah, and the problem is the way it's structured, it, you may not be feeling it and you may not be articulating it because it's not there. And that's a provocative thing to do, to really examine why. You know, one of the really simple tests I talk about in the book, which is around target market, I call the authenticity test. And this is as basic as you get, but I find it really helpful. And that is just this. So, you know, imagine uh, that you've got a whiteboard in front of you and you just, it just says at, insert name of firm here, you know, at my firm, we work with clients who, and just describe who it is you work with. But the second part of that sentence is the reason we work with insert clients here, you know, is because. So at my firm, we work with first-generation business owners. The reason we work with first-generation business owners is because. And if you can say that sentence and say it out loud and have it sound um, engaging and something that you are truly care about, then you're on the right track. If it sounds like uh, at my firm, we work with uh, pre-retirees who have between 250000 and 500000 investable assets. You know, it's hard to get excited about that. That may be part of your definition of the clients you work with, but it's not an authentic why. And and once you've got that, as you say, it's it's an amazing thing, but it also allows you to communicate in a completely different way. Well, true. <clears throat> and it's and it's not a why at all. And and this is I think this is an important point to bring out that if if you're talking if you're telling if you describe your ideal client partly in terms of how much they have to invest. Well, that's not a target market. That's a qualification criteria, right? That's mm-hmm. an acceptance criteria. That that's not a description yeah. of the client. Yeah. And so, you know, there's nothing meaningful you can say if all you know is their investable assets. And so, like you yeah. said, you you can't really be passionate about that. And sometimes I think you need to, you know, I suggest that people take take that whiteboard they, they had in their mind and then make it a welcome sign on your door. And imagine that, you know, if that was the only thing somebody could read about you and, and I'm the prospect, you know, do I bound through that door going, this is going to be epic, you know. This dude works with pre-retirees with $500,000, and uh, uh, this is amazing. I can't believe he understands right. me so well. <laughs> right? You just, work with people who happen. have two to five million. You're exactly the person I was looking for. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we got to flip it around, and it's, it's your why, but that why has to be compelling to others. And if it's not, then we've got to disconnect. And uh, in, in terms of, of developing that vision and getting in that direction, can you talk to, to me a little bit about um, about taking risks and, you know, sort of going out on a limb for part of this? Well, I mean, I think the entire process sort of speaks to a bit of personal risk and a bit of professional risk. Um, I can tell you this, that the, the biggest obstacle that I run into the biggest challenge for people is often not the business risk it's the personal it's it's opening our our minds to possibility it's about having the courage to say all right now that i know what 
I really love and, and what I really want, am I going to have the courage to actually now define my business that way? Or am I going to be, am I going to listen to the voices in my head that tell me that's selfish to think of myself? Uh, what about the family? Am I going to see a dent in income? I'm responsible for everyone and everything in this world. Maybe that's just me. Um, but, <laughs> you know, so I, when you say the word risk, the first thing that comes to my mind is just what feels like a personal risk because you've got to be open, a little vulnerable and really authentic about what you want if you're going to make this work. Um, now, at, then we, you know, assuming we can get through that challenge, there's some, there's some professional risk, as it were. It, there's a, a process that we need to go through here. If, if I decide I'm going to change my target audience, probably I don't do that tomorrow. Probably I do some analysis to figure out what impact this is going to have. Maybe I just start accepting new clients who meet the criteria. Maybe over time I start uh, transferring clients who don't. You know, there are ways to mitigate that risk. And I think that's just execution. I think the bigger question is the personal risk. Well, but I think that we should think hard about that because what, I, yeah, what I've seen sometimes is advisors who say, I really want to work with and then describe an ideal client because they have this really sort of mixed up client base with all different kinds of people in it um, and say, well, okay, so I'll just gradually work toward that. And on some level, that's really just a recipe for not taking action on it, that yeah. they never actually get there. It's it's like the people who, who you know, say, well, you know, I, I want to start in the business part time. I mean, anybody who says that to me is basically immediately off the radar because you know that they're not going to do it. Yeah. So, and and I I think there's two reasons to say it's going to be gradual, and one is valid, and one is not. So, if it's this is just you know this is just a way for me to delay the inevitable, um, then then I think you're exactly right. You've got you've got to make a bold choice and decision. The decision I think needs to be bold. The execution does depend to some extent on circumstance. Now, I'm not saying delay, but for example, if we had someone who, uh, you know, who had five kids at home, all in private school, and legitimately felt that if they did an, a change tomorrow, it would create disruption in the family versus perhaps doing it over a 12-month period, then I can buy that. I mean, there's there are real reasons that we have to do things at a different pace, with the caveat that the, if the decision has been made, there's a clear timeline, there's a clear process in place, because otherwise I think you are exactly right. We just don't do anything. And I think it would, and I think it's really important as part of that too, uh, even if you're not going to make the change tomorrow, that you mm -hmm. need to pick a date, that you need to, to, yeah. to put a stake in the ground to say, okay, one year from today, two years from today, whatever it is, we will only be accepting clients like this, or we yes. will aim all of our marketing material toward this, or we will reorient our website toward this, Absolutely. rather than just gradually, because again, you get into the gradual thing and you know you end up not, not getting anywhere. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, I couldn't agree more. And and that requires that you reconnect with that why pretty regularly, right? That we, we're never going to make any of these changes if we don't believe 
that it's going to have some significant impact. And that's why I did the research around the book first is to say, look, I could talk all I want about having a vision and and telling you my story and it all sounds nice and, and but at the end of the day we have to know this is going to have a substantive impact otherwise it scares us and so that's again where that research came in was saying look we've got this group of people they've made these changes in different ways um, but they've made these changes and look at them now the businesses are bigger they feel better they they feel more energized well, we're running a little bit tight on time, but there was at least one thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about, just because it is your background and where you come from. And I also think it's a really important message. And that's about the difference between, we, we talk about involving clients in this and, and, and what mm-hmm. uh, being absolutely engaged will mean to your clients as well as to you and your business. And, and, and part of that is the difference between satisfaction and loyalty. Can you talk a little bit about what you've unearthed there? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I I believe that one of the ways that we move from satisfaction to deeper engagement actually starts with defining that target client because it's very difficult to define an engaging experience for a hundred different types of people, right? It just it's you end up going to the lowest common denominator, and that's what we've been doing largely. You know, how often do I meet? You know, do I run a couple of educational things each year? You know, you do the right things, but they're not personalized. They're not tailored to that target audience. So a lot of what we talk about in the book is, all right, how do, now that I've got that vision, how do I bend the client experience around that? And I do believe very strongly that it starts with involving the client, as you said. So we need to leave assumption at the door and go to clients and not just ask, how are we doing? I mean, I think that's important as a benchmark, but get them talking about what great looks like. Get them talking about what an extraordinary experience would feel like. Involve them in defining that so that you can sit down and craft a client journey that truly reflects what they consider to be extraordinary. So it's it's not... It's gathering feedback, but it's in particular, it's gathering a different type of feedback input into what this client experience should really look like. And, and that to me is the starting point on the client experience side. And, and I think that's, that gets right to the, the core of the podcast. If you want to become referable, you know, you need to have that passion behind what you're doing because you know that will drive that loyalty that will generate some of that passion within the clients and 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 you know it creating you know a client experience that that reflects that passion is fundamentally different than just trying to do something that's you know in air quotes white glove service or something like that 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 you know t- t- can you tell me a little bit more about the um uh about how that passion translates into a a, a totally different kind of client experience well, it's it, it. So now, what you have the ability to do is tailor that client journey in a way that's specific to the needs, wants, and interests of of that group. So, it you know, instead of just saying I can work with business owners, what you're doing is building every piece of the business to support business owners or whatever the target is, and and now what you can do is create 
communications that are specifically tailored. You can hire a team that shares that passion. You can run events that are exactly right for these kinds of people. And, and so what you begin to do is create a client experience that truly is an experience. It's something unique. It's something that, that reflects who I am as your client and, and what's important to me. And I believe that these are the things that then lead us to refer. So uh, either to, to invite other people in or to create an experience that is so compelling that and so engaging and has the opportunity to involve other people that I do naturally refer more often. And, and of course, it becomes much easier to refer, not just naturally, but if, if, if you're targeting business owners and you're running events that are specifically targeted to business owners, just to give a simple example, it's very easy to see why it would be easy to get these people to invite their business owner friends along because it's so specifically tailored, if that makes sense. And and you you talk about actually creating a map for that kind of uh, for the journey through that experience, right? Yeah. So you know when we're doing client experience work, we like to walk through a, a few steps, and one is involving the clients to define great and and to define extraordinary, and then the second is to um, I mean first we've got to lay a, a foundation, but beyond that, creating a client journey map really says. What would extraordinary look like at each phase of the relationship from before you meet the client through the initial contact, through onboarding, through the reviews and education and appreciation, really looking at the experience through the eyes of the client at each stage. The other piece of a journey map is that it looks at different um, types of communication. So for example, if we took initial contact If I call your office and I get this wonderful, warm person on the other end of the phone who says, we just can't wait to see you and we've worked with people just like you and, you know, how do you like your coffee or whatever it is that that person does, I might feel incredible. If I go on the website and I fill in a form and it says, thanks for your note, we'll be in touch in 48 hours, I have a completely different initial contact experience. So we're looking for consistency as well across the different points of contact. And those two things combined create a journey map. It's a great exercise. I, you know, I, it, you, you reminded me of um, the importance of this. I, I remember talking a long time ago. Actually, I think you were there when we, um, we did a, a, a group discussion, I think for FPA about this. And, and I remember one of the advisors was saying that most of his referrals actually come from his assistants or the, or the assistants mm-hmm. are the ones who get the clients to refer because they would, you know, the, he would he would be in a meeting with the client and there would be an assistant or a para planner there and he would leave the room to do something and the, and the para would say, we just love working with people like you. You know, we just love working with people just like you. And, and the, the, you know, the, the, the opportunity for, for really good targeting and a niche experience to create that kind of thing is, is so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, point. The, I, I wanted to ask you also about the the issue of um, um, active versus passive loyalty. I, this is something that I, I I heard another interview recently by with uh, Rohit Bhargava, who wrote a book called Lycanomics, and about you know uh, people who are actively loyal and are more likely to refer, and people who are passively loyal, meaning they will continue doing business with you because the economics of switching are more than they would want to have to go through. Um, 
and the 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 difference both you know what may happen when when the circumstances change the market goes down robos get more popular and and less expensive whatever you know and or um uh, but that that might flip that flip the switch and and cre- lower the barriers you know can you talk a little bit about um all of the components of this process and and its effect on 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 active versus passive loyalty the basis of the engagement research that we've done focuses on these different segments, two of which are content versus engaged. And the fundamental difference between the two is just as you point out, content clients are the ones that are very satisfied, wouldn't say a bad word about their advisor, but they've never provided a referral. Whereas the engaged are even happier statistically with the relationship, but they provide all the referrals. And so that's kind of the core definition of passive versus active as it relates to the segmentation. Um, And the problem is we look at these as one group and we call them all satisfied. Satisfaction doesn't necessarily, well, doesn't at all really drive referrals. Engagement does because it's a deeper, more active relationship. So that's kind of definitionally, I think it's important that we understand who those active clients are and understand the, the client experience that, that they're receiving and what's different about it. This also kind of ties into a, a, a slightly different um, definition of active versus passive that we use in the book, which is around the experience itself uh, and client appreciation, for example. So the notion that a lot of us do client appreciation, which is quite passive, you know, and it's not bad. It's just passive sending someone uh, an invitation to an event or an article or, you know, things that are nice, um, but really don't create an engagement don't necessarily lead to a difference. Whereas what I'm seeing is a more active experience. And if we looked at appreciation, for example, that might be um, helping me uh, teach my kid about making good financial decisions or something where you're actually helping me make a change in my life. And that to me is active appreciation, active education, And I think those are the kinds of things that drive engagement and ultimately drive referrals because I'll talk about that to people. I will, I, I, I don't usually say I went to this nice wine and cheese last night, but I do say I'm, you know, I want my, my advisor had my son in, not mine because he's seven, but you know, older, an older (laughs) kid in to talk about uh, finances and credit cards and decisions they need to be making. That's powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, Julie, there's, there's, there's so much more in this book that we could talk about and so much more that advisors could get out of this, but we are, we are sort of out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but so tell us, where, where can we find the book? So uh, it's on our site, which is absoluteengagement.com slash book. And there is information there. You can download the first chapter to take a sneak peek, or of course, you can buy it right there on the site. Excellent. Well, the book is The Pursuit of Absolute Engagement, Intentionally Designing a Business That Supports the Life You Really Want to Live. Julie, thanks for spending a little while talking with us about it. And um, I hope that uh, your experience on the road helps you uh, inspire lots of advisors to become absolutely engaged. Thank you. It was great talking to you about this. Yeah, it was fun to talk with you about it, too. Take care. Hey folks, Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. 
You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.